This week we'll be covering the bread of the Markin sandwich we began to devour last week. Now, to review, a Markin sandwich is the term that scholars give to one of the dual teachings that we find throughout the Gospel of Mark, where the author will start out with one story and then insert another into the middle, um, and they're meant to be compared and contrasted. The first of these would be the account of both Yeshua's, or you may call him Jesus's, uh, family and the scribes from Jerusalem, you know, rejecting him in Capernaum on the grounds that he's either insane or in league with the devil. The second is the parable of the sower, you know, broken up with a teaching from Isaiah. Last week, we started this account with the story of the woman with the issue of blood that occurred on the way to the house of the synagogue leader, Jairus, whose daughter was dying. Now, let's read the whole thing real quick here again before exploring it verse by verse. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And we're going to skip over the woman with the issue of blood. While he was still speaking, this is, uh, we're going to start up again in uh, verse 35. We start in verse 22 of um, chapter 6. Sorry, I didn't mention that at the beginning. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the little girl was. Where the child was, excuse me. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years old and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat hi i am tyler don rosenquist and welcome to character in context where i teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the messiah if you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it. It's called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. 
A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. I did add a new book to the list this week, and we will start out by talking about it. <coughs> it's by a scholar named Sun Huang Hefam, and it is called Morning in the Ancient Near East in the Hebrew Bible. Now, she's Christian, and this book was her doctoral dissertation. Her story is just incredibly compelling. Vietnamese by birth, she and her husband, who was interned at a re-education camp for three years, um, were later able to emigrate to the United States. She was one of seven children raised by this courageous woman who, at the age of 38, was widowed and left to raise her large brood on her own. Now, this is a woman well acquainted with the concept of mourning, and her scholarship on the Book of Lamentations is just impeccable. Expensive, but if you want to learn about mourning, this is the book. And fortunately, my copy was a very generous gift. All right, let's look at some ancient mourning text before we head into uh, talking about the account with Jairus. Now, this one's from Babylon, The Curse of Agade. This was written sometime between 2200 and 2000 before the Common Era. The old woman who the old women who survived those days, the old men who survived those days, and the chief lamentation singer who survived those years, set up the seven balage drums, as they, as if they stood at the horizon, and together with the drums made them resound to and lil like a cour, for seven days and seven nights. The old women did not restrain their cry, Alas, for my city! The old men did not restrain the cry, Alas, for its people! The lamentation singer did not restrain the cry, Alas, for the ikur! The young women did not restrain from tearing their hair. Its young men did not restrain from sharpening their knives. Now her commentary reads, Seven days and seven nights mark the ritual period of mourning during which people lament loudly, tearing their hair and cutting themselves with sharp knives. Several groups of people take turns lamenting, the chief lamentation singer, the old women, the old men. Musical instruments accompanied the loud wailing. Um... Now, I, I, I won't read from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written during the second millennium before the Common Era, but I, I will read her commentary on it. When his younger friend Enkidu dies, Gilgamesh covers the face of his friend and weeps aloud, calling the elders, the wailing women, and the people of Uruk to lament. He walks back and forth in front of the dead body, pulling out his hair and tearing off his clothes. He weeps over Enkidu for seven days and seven nights. Um, the poems about Baal and Anat are also from the second millennium before the common era, uh, era and this is from the Ugaritic Baal epic. This takes place as soon as the death of Baal Hadad is announced to the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon, who is named El. Then El the Kind, 
the compassionate, descends from his throne and sits on the footstool. From the footstool, he descends and sits on the ground. He strews stalks of mourning on his head and dust in which he wallows on his pate, means head. His clothing he tears down to the loincloth. His skin he bruises with a rock by pounding. With a razor he cuts his beard and whiskers. He rakes his upper arms. He plows his breast like a garden. Like a valley he rakes his chest. He rakes or he raises his voice and shouts, Baal is dead. What will happen to the people? Dagon's son, what will happen to the masses? Now, remember, we've talked about this before. Uh, we talked about this, um, I believe, in Isaiah and the Messiah Part 3. The pagan gods were always anthropomorphized, <laughs> that word, right? And that means discussed in human terms. Um, far more than Yahweh was in the Bible, although he is anthropomorphized a lot, but not nearly as much. They, they don't talk about him like he actually was a person, but they use metaphors. Now, the, the false gods are always portrayed as actual flesh and blood beings with lives that parallel humans. And so it's fitting that they would mourn in the same way that humans do. Now here, Baal Hadad, the god of rain and storms, um, the son of Dagon, who is the grain god, he's died and the chief of gods honors him by mourning him. And by, by the way, Baal Hadad is the one called Baal in the Hebrew scriptures. All right, They don't give his full name, but it's Baal Hadad. And he's the god of rain and storms. Now, um, we see a few negative Torah commandments being highlighted in all of the above accounts. We have the cutting yourself for the dead, shaving for the dead. But we see rituals that are carried out in the Bible for mourning, which are not forbidden. All right. Sitting on the ground. Tearing clothes, which is only forbidden uh, for the high priest, all right? Placing dirt or, or ashes on one's head. Weeping and wailing, uh, professional mourners, accompanied by instruments. Proof that not everything the pagans did was bad. You know, a lot of things are simply cultural, and I actually wrote a blog about that a number of years ago that I will... Um, I will link to the transcript when I put it up on my blog. We have to make sure to be careful to know the difference between being anti-idolatry and anti-cultural. Sometimes the culture is neutral or beneficial, and sometimes it's bad. Discernment's required. Okay, now that we've gone through all that, let's go through this week's scripture, and we're starting in verse 22, and... I know I told you chapter 6, and that's wrong. It's chapter 5. Uh, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, 
and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Okay, now, if we were going to go way too far with this verse, we would accuse Jairus of worshiping Yeshua, but this is not the case. Throwing oneself at the feet of another was a common way for a person of lesser authority to petition benefaction from someone of greater authority. In other words, Jairus was following the culturally recognized procedure for asking someone for something. This is straight up patron-client behavior, which I don't think I've taught you guys yet. Although Jairus um, was an Archie Sinagos, Sinago, Archie, uh, Archie Sinagos, <laughs> got too many. Oh. Archie Sinagogos, <laughs> meaning that he was either a wealthy benefactor of the local assembly or an actual official, and there's no way of knowing. Yeshua had something he needed. And so he treated Yeshua as a benefactor. I always just hate pronouncing that word because it has go-go in it. And I, I want to eliminate one of the goes. I always want to call it Archisynagos. And it's not Archisynagos, it's Archisynagogos. It's, it's just this thing in my mind. It doesn't want to do it right. All right. Verse 23. By the way, there are a lot of he's and him's in this. And it, that's one of the things that I find kind of annoying about this section, but that's the way it was written. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. Okay. Now we're about to have a laugh at my expense. I, I wrote the notes for this weeks ago. But, um, you know, since my first stroke in 97, I, I don't have the prettiest handwriting on earth. And so I wrote a note on this verse and I looked at it and it said again, like in Genesis. So, so this afternoon I was poring over all my commentaries and comparing the Greek words to different episodes in Genesis and Septuagint, you know, which is the second slash third century BCE translation of the Hebrew scriptures in the Greek. And I was about pulling my hair out until I looked closer and it says, again, like in the Gerasenes. And I remember that I was comparing the language to the lesson from two weeks ago with the demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes. Just, wow. All right. So, <laughs> ah, verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Of course, this is an entirely different situation. Instead of a... Uh, a demon-possessed Gentile living among the tombs. Now we have a respecter, a respectable, excuse me, ruler of the synagogue. But they both rushed to him and fell down before him and cried out to him. And in English, you could assume that the wording is the same in the Greek, but it's not. It's meant to give you the same sense of urgency, of life and death, 
while showing that the two people and their situations are also very different. Now, what is exactly the same? You know, um, it's, it's their acknowledgement that Yeshua has the authority. Authority that Legion does not want to be faced with, but Jairus, the synagogue leader, does want to take a hold of. Okay. Now, the demon-possessed man begged, Please don't use your authority. You know, whereas Jairus is begging for just the exact opposite. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. This is the first mention in the Gospel of Mark about the laying on of hands. You know, which is surprising since he's done so much of it. Or, I mean, he's not done so much of it, but he's done so much healing. And, um, right? So, that's not to say that he hasn't touched people. Don't get me wrong. He touched Peter's mother-in-law, right? He grabbed her hand and he said, you know, rise up. He touched the leper. But laying on hands is different. And we see no response, as we often do, of challenges to his faith or any questioning, you know, Instead, you know, verse 24, and he, Yeshua, went with him. Already dead. So, um, at this point, we're going to skip the story of the woman with the issue of blood, because we covered that last week. Um, although, as we go through, we're going to be forced to compare and contrast the episodes. This is why Mark joined them together in a single narrative. Oh, you know, Mark is just deceptively complex. I really think it's the most complex. It's, it's certainly the most important of the synoptic gospels and the most, um, that's the most important. It is. It's for, for a lot of reasons. It's, it's the one that the other two, the other two were written after and they depended on the material in Mark. They didn't cover it the same way, but they depended on it. And it's my favorite. It is. Oh, verse 35. While he was still speaking. All right. Remember, we've had this gap. So we've got to take that into account. Speaking to who? He had literally just finished speaking, or I'm sorry, lit literally just finished listening to the confession of faith and action of the hemorrhaging woman. And he had replied to her, and this is important. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Okay. Notice that, um, you know, Jairus, Jairus came to Yeshua about his daughter, whom he was speaking for and petitioning a miracle for. All right. Yes, I just ended a sentence with a preposition. Get over it. <laughs> Yeshua had just finished healing a woman bringing her back from social ostracism and a form of living death, who had no one to stand up for her. And so Yeshua claimed her as daughter in front of the crowd. She wasn't identified as a wife, daughter, sister, or anything except according to her disease, all right? She was the ultimate outsider in that community, but Yeshua gave her insider status with him, because of her faith. 
Now, here we have this high-ranking community member pleading for his own daughter, and Yeshua has joined him without so much as a word, but was simply you know, just delayed along the way. Okay, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Before I address the elephant in the room, I want to point out that the word for daughter here is Thygater, and is the same exact word that Yeshua uses for the woman with the issue of blood, tying these accounts together, okay? And I know what you're thinking. Awesome bedside manner, you jerks. But it leads to the question, was she already, in fact, dead when Jairus went to fetch Yeshua? Here, Jairus um, claims that she is merely dying and not dead. If she was actually dead, uh, then this is an even more impressive act of faith than it would appear on the surface. If she wasn't already dead, then this guy deserved, uh, this, though these guys that, that came deserved a punch in, punch in their noses. As, uh, as they don't get punched, it could possibly be that, you know, Jairus is fully aware that his daughter was dead, but was going to get Yeshua anyway. And maybe exaggerated a bit to get him to come under the auspices of her being only nearly dead. Or, as uh, Miracle Max would say, mostly dead. And as we all know, mostly dead is slightly alive. You didn't, you know, if you don't like the Princess Bride references, then what are you doing listening to me, right? So, Matthew 9, the parallel account in Matthew 9 says she's already dead, and that she is his only daughter. However, Luke 8 either tells us that she's dying or not dead yet, or tells us that that is what Jairus is claiming. The, the text doesn't say that he's lying. Now remember, these accounts are not written by the original disciples, but decades later based on oral traditions and much of it based upon Mark. Okay, Just like the Hebrew scriptures, you have accounts of the same thing given in different books, and sometimes even in the same book, the story is slightly different. The truth is still the same. But it doesn't have our modern historical accuracy standards, which are modern and are therefore irrelevant to the biblical text and how the authors wrote the stories. Remember, we change the rules and you can't retroactively apply them to have other people live according to them. It's ridiculous. It's, it's very presumptuous. Now, honestly, the controversy over the three accounts reminds me of Elisha and the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4. She wasn't willing to be honest about the condition of her dead son at first either. Elisha ended up going with her to her home and raising the boy from the dead. So I think the confusion in the three accounts might reflect the story with Elisha. I know it bothers some folks that the three accounts aren't perfectly in alignment, but I can assure you that if this was a hoax, they would totally match up perfectly. Um, you know, I, I've said many times that people died, you know, most people died before the age of 17 in the first century Israel uh, due to disease, 
you know, parasites, malnutrition, and a complete lack of uh, modern medicine. 30% in the first year of life and like 70% by the end of the teenage years. A 12-year-old dying was sad, but it wasn't what we would consider a tragedy. It was more the norm, all right? So this, these buddies of his, you know, is reasoning, they're, they're reasoning with him to be, well, more reasonable. And these things happen, right? Why should you bother the teacher over your daughter when this has happened to all of us? All right. So that is it for this half. Um, I will. Cultures are really different. Times are different. I'll be back. This is Tyler Don Rosenquist. Welcome back to this week's Character in Context. This week we are discussing the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, and we already covered um, some really fascinating material on mourning practices in the ancient Near East. So if, if you didn't catch that, that's some really cool historical stuff. You'll definitely want to um, catch that. On, uh, on either the archive that I'll post on Friday over at characterincontext.podbean.com or on my blog when I post the uh, transcript this um, on Friday. Anyway, awesome stuff. Awesome. And, and it really illuminates a lot of stuff that we see in the, in the Torah, too, with uh, the laws and some of the... Um, the forbidden things it's why can't we do those it doesn't make any sense well when we see them in context so anyway so we are in uh chapter five and we're in verse 36 right now and the people some people had just come up to Jairus and said hey why are you bothering the teacher right now your daughter's dead which you know is just so incredibly compassionate now Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, which was, why are you bothering the teacher? Your daughter's dead. Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Now, what is not listed as happening, all right? Jairus doesn't weep or wail or tear his clothing. Yeshua prevents any ritual expression of grief by jumping in and saying, fear not. First, you know, phobeo, it's the same word used for the state of mind of the woman with the issue of blood when she was, um, when Yeshua turned around and says, who touched me? You know, she was, she was scared. Um, on top of that, you know, you know, boy, oh boy, here we have the Yahweh warrior Isaiah language again that we encountered in part one of the series where they were terrified of him after he calmed the storm at sea. This series of deliverances from death are all being presented as self-manifestations of Yeshua's true identity. Of course, no one was understanding them and not even his disciples, but, you know, they would later. Now, right now, he's providing breadcrumbs. But the truth is still veiled, and it has to be veiled. 
These guys aren't stupid. It isn't that they don't know the scripture, but the plans of Yahweh require that they remain in the dark until the powers that be put the king of glory to death. Yeshua speaks directly to the synagogue ruler, not to the person who came to discourage him, or to the people, actually, who came to discourage um, him and his petition. You know, he says, do not fear, only believe. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Now, this is the very first time in the Gospel of Mark that we see Peter, James, and John taken aside privately. Sometimes I wonder, only slightly in jest, whether it was to keep Mr. Let's cut someone's ear off and let's slaughter the Samaritan brothers out of trouble, okay? Which, considering the stuff they pulled, is scary. But, <laughs> um... You know, but remember, you know, we, you know, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and call them Yeshua's inner circle, you know, which means they're the best of the best. And so <laughs> what are the other guys doing, right? Um, but remember that at least two of them were probably teenage boys and having raised two of them to quote unquote adulthood, they're 19 now, I know how that can be. Anyway, you know... He will take them aside two more times at the Transfiguration and in Gethsemane when they will be joined by Andrew when they ask him about the end of the age. Now, why is he taking anyone at all? You know, why not take the whole group? Why just these guys? Well, he is going to seriously need witnesses as to what he does and and and, and to what he does and, and does not do, you know, what does and does not happen. As he's recently been accused of being in league with Beelzebul, the master of the house, lord of the house, nothing can be done entirely in secret or in private anymore. Verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. In... Uh, Sun Huang He Pham's book, um, she notes that the first part of the morning ceremony consisted of choral or antiphonal songs performed with clapping. Antiphonal, by the way, means people taking turns, you know, they, and they kind of answer back and forth. According to the Talmud, even a poor man was required to hire a minimum of two flute players and one professional mourner for his dead wife. Matthew 9.23, the, the, one of the um, parallel accounts to this, says that the flute players were already on the scene. And the professional mourners are obviously there in a force in both accounts. Now, how do I know these guys aren't bereaved family members weeping and crying? Well, we'll get to that in a bit here, but it will become painfully obvious. Verse 39, and we're going to do verse 39 and 40 together. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Uh, so, yeah, not grieving family members. 
they would have never laughed. Maybe they would have gotten angry at what might be perceived as a cruel joke from a stranger. But only hardened professional mourners are going to burst out laughing when a 12-year-old girl has died. No matter how common such a thing was, it still wasn't funny. Death was an ever-present companion, and, and I don't think they made a lot of jokes about it the way I see people out there, you know, making jokes about COVID. And uh, I've had to minister to enough families of the dead to know that people who are well acquainted with true grief don't make a lot of jokes about it. It's the people who are far from grief and who are scared of it who make all the jokes. These people were paid professionals. They went from house to house doing this. It was money and not a matter of the heart or an act of compassion. The compassionate ones didn't need to be paid to be there. Rest of verse 40 here. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went to where the child was. Okay, so the mourners, quote-unquote the mourners, that's kind of ironic, right? Have uh, now been unceremoniously booted out of the home and into the outside courtyard. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> no doubt outraged that their paying gig has been interrupted. Well, maybe they aren't laughing anymore, or maybe they're laughing even harder that this guy has completely upended tradition. But right now we have Yeshua, Peter, James, John, and the girl's mother and father, and they leave the main room of the home. The rest of the disciples are, you know, somewhere, left behind somewhere. Um, not Tim LaHaye left behind, but just not included in, in, in the party. We do not know, and this is going to be some party, by the way, all of a sudden. And, you know, we do not know if the girl is in a back room or in an upper room, but it would make sense to place a sick child um, in an upper room, you know, as it was cooler there during the day. Houses were not particularly large, but he was a community leader, so presumably he had, you know, at least some money. Verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. He did what? He took her by the hand. Can you say mega corpse impurity, boys and girls? People say he didn't become unclean because there's a mis misconception that being unclean is a sin. But it isn't. Being unclean is a natural part of life. Not like dirty, unclean, but, you know, ritually unclean. You know, meaning that you had to go through certain things before going to the temple. Now, Yeshua became unclean when he touched the leper, when the woman of blood, woman with the issue of blood touched him, so he was actually already unclean today. And he became the big kahuna granddaddy of unclean when... Um, he touched the corpse. Actually, he became unclean as soon as he entered the room. Okay, anyone who's in the, in, the, in I I don't know the exact verse. I can't remember it offhand. Um, but as soon as you walk into a room with a corpse, you're unclean. So all of us, everyone who's been to a funeral, we're all unclean, incurably unclean at that, with the worst kind of uncleanness. 
Um, okay, so, but when Yeshua became unclean, the leper was cleansed and the woman's blood stopped flowing and, you know, we'll get to that in a minute. Now, Yeshua brought his disciples with him in order to be a witness of exactly what did and did not happen. As per the Bible, necromancy is real. Necromancers have dealing with the dead, and it is a death penalty offense according to the Torah, which lists it four times, Leviticus 19.31, 26, 2027, excuse me, and Deuteronomy 18.11. Let's real quick look at um, Saul's final sin with the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28, starting in verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Excuse me, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for me to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, which took a lot of gall, let me tell you. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God that would be an Elohim, would be a mighty man, coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Gee, I wonder why. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also into the hand of the Philistines, also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give an army of Israel. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. So, you know, necromancy was real. And Yeshua ran the real risk of being accused of it here. He brings through witnesses of his own and also has the mom and dad there. Do they record any rituals? 
Any odd mumbo jumbo? Did he sacrifice a chicken? Does he call upon any angels or demons or false gods? You know, does he offer a sacrifice right then and there? Um, no, 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 no. Acting on his own authority, he says, Talitha kum. In uh, Aramaic, which um, the author translates as little girl, I say to you, Egiro. <gasps> Ooh, it's one of our fun Greek words. The rise up word that is also used for resurrection. And in this case, it's entirely appropriate. It was important to give us the phrase as is and to tell us what it means for a number for a number of reasons. One, so we do not think he is calling on a foreign god slash demon. Two, so we know these words have a common everyday meaning. And three, we know he's speaking under his own authority. All of these would be needed if there were acute accusations of necromancy should word of this miracle get out. You know, really, the miracle had never been greater and the stakes had never been higher up to this point. Verse 42. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now, this girl wasn't restored the way I was after my recent bout with a nasty non-COVID respiratory virus that had me down for days and unable to do any much of anything until I regained my strength. No, no, because I healed naturally, right? Uh, and it took time. But this little gal, she was up and about. No different than Peter's mother-in-law who'd bounced out of bed and got him some dinner. When Yeshua walked the earth, he wasn't playing, all right? And his faith and authority were absolute. He restored people completely, not only to health, but to service and to community life. Now, how old was she? She was 12. How long had the woman with the issue of blood suffered? 12 long years. This is the third link between the stories that I'm aware of. There are probably more. Um, this is this is why they're sandwiched together. It's pretty cool. So we have the daughter, we have the um, we have the twelve years, and we have I can't remember. But <laughs> now, verse forty-three, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. You know, here are the similarities end. The woman with the issue of blood was compelled to speak and tell what had happened to her and what she'd done while, you know, these three, you know, mom, dad, and daughter were strictly charged to silence. And you might be wondering if this, you know, strictly charged is the same angry wording as was used in Yeshua's warning to the leper to be silent, but it isn't, okay? He's not at all angry. This time, just very firm. You know, after all, now is not a time for anger, but rejoicing. But why would he swear to them to silence? And what, what about the garrison demoniac? The guy was just flat out told to blab it to the whole Gentile community, and he told everyone in the Decapolis area. You know, there are a number of possibilities. However, um... But 
but um, this is this case was different. You know, one there were necromancy charges, um, which we already talked about, and two. It's very possible that this resurrected girl would be marriageable if people. Oh, I'm sorry, unmarriageable. Dang. If people knew. In such a superstitious society, the girl would likely be stigmatized, um, considered tainted, or maybe even cursed. I mean, even 70 years ago, and, and I've told you this story, Rebetzin uh, Chaya Sarah Kramer, a Holocaust survivor, was living in poverty in a kibbutz in Israel with her husband Moshe after she and he made Aliyah after the war. They took in so many children who had terrible brain damage and disabilities because with the Hasidim, it made the entire family of children unmarriageable if one was quote-unquote defective. And yes, as a special needs mom, it offends me to no end, but that's the way it was. Hopefully it's not that way anymore, I hope. So Yeshua told them to be quiet about it, but Matthew 9.26 says the report of it went everywhere. You know, oh well, at least he tried. But I want you to notice something. Those shameful, mocking mourners who were in affront to the gravity of the situation, remember our, you know, insiders and outsiders theme? They were inside when Yeshua got there, but he forced them outside. They didn't get to witness the miracle. They were excluded. They had to settle for being puzzled when the girl was walking about later. And I am hoping... Uh, that's how the word got out, and that not the parents and the girl blab, but, you know, girl was dead, mourners were busy weeping and wailing and playing flutes, Yeshua arrives, tells them she isn't dead, they laugh it up, they get booted out of the house, they probably heard the shouts of joy from the outside shortly thereafter, and the girl was definitely in the synagogue on Sabbath. You know, not much you can do about keeping the rumors at bay when it really comes down to it. And yet, you know, astoundingly, next week we're going to see him rejected at Nazareth. Oh, shocking. Anyway, I wanted to talk really quick about something that, at the time of this recording, which is uh, recording this on the 30th of August, something happened two days ago that's just really, really incredibly sad. And uh, the actor Chadwick Boseman, who is our brother in Messiah, he... Uh, he died after a four-year battle uh, with colon cancer. And um, there were pictures out of him very, very thin. He never said anything. And I guess, you know, a lot of people thought, well, you know, sometimes these actors, they're going to play someone who's very, very sick or lost a lot of weight. And I think everybody was hoping. I know everyone was hoping. That was uh, what it was. But as I was talking about on social media this morning, the tributes that are coming in and the language that's being used to describe him by unbelievers is full of words from the Sermon on the Mount and full of words um, from the passage on the fruit of the Spirit kind, generous, humble um, you know, you're seeing these words that should describe all of us. 
And the fact they're being used very potentially by people who have never cracked open a Bible, you know, that says a lot about the witness of his life and who he was beyond just being an inspiration to, um, as a black superhero, to kids who, um, are used to seeing white superheroes and, and didn't really feel enormously represented. And, uh, Chadwick Boseman, of course, changed that. He, he played a lot of uh, inspirational black figures from, uh, Jackie Robinson that the movie 42 was really good to Thurgood Marshall, um, in Marshall Supreme Court justice, first black Supreme Court justice. And, um, But we should all strive, you know, most of us aren't ever going to be famous. But to be famous and to have people describe you in those kind of terms that we should all be described in, you know, that's no small thing. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to serve God. But the way that all of us, all of us, no matter who we are, if a bunch of people know us or only a few people know us, the way we should always be described is by those those terms that you see over and over again in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and in the Fruit of the Spirit. And uh, everyone can do that. doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter, you know, anything. So well done, Chadwick. Look forward to seeing you, brother. Music